Welcome to Saga Thing, where we're putting the sagas of the Icelanders on trial. I'm John. And I'm Andy. In each episode, we choose a saga, explore its story and themes, and then judge the actions of its characters at The Saga Thing. And if you thought Finn Bogey's saga was obscure, just wait to hear what we're up to this time around. <laughs> Way to sell the merchandise. <laughs> well, you know, I didn't say it wasn't a good saga. I just said, you know, it's uh, obscure. So what we're talking about is Rekdala Saga Ok Vigaskutu, uh, or the saga of the people of Rekidal and of Killer Skuta. Mm-hmm. And you don't have to say that it isn't a good saga, because we've got any number of scholars who are willing to say that for you. Oh, yes. And before we get to the roast, uh, let's start with a quick introduction. Why don't you push the button and kick this thing off properly? All right, wish me luck. This is going to be hard. In the first part of our saga, we trace the exploits of the scoundrel Veyman Fjorleiferson as he attempts to earn the praise of his wise uncle, Oskil the Gothi. But Veyman's methods are somewhat shady and often require trickery, theft, and an occasional touch of brute force. Along the way, you will meet Veyman's troublesome brother Hals, who proves himself capable of pleasing a woman, but incapable of keeping her. Poor Oskil Gothi will have his hands full with those two. Will he have the patience and skill to save them from outlawry? Or will Oskil give in to the pressures of society and betray them? Will Oskil and his nephews ride off into the sunset victorious over their enemies? Or will Steingrim and his men get the better of them? But wait, there's more. In the second half of the saga, Oskil's son Killer Skuta returns to Iceland and takes up the bloody task of restoring his family's honor. It's exactly the kind of job a man with a name like Killer Skutta was born to do. But will Skutta's killer instincts be enough? Can he balance the ledger of vengeance and live to tell the tale? Find out as Saga Thing takes on the saga of the people of Rekjadal and Killer Skutta. Now, see, that doesn't sound so bad. I mean, mm-hmm. there's a lot of stealing, plotting, lawsuits, <laughs> revenge, and there's even a killing spree. So on the surface, I'd say it sounds like everything that we actually like in a saga. That's a fair point, actually, and we shouldn't talk as if this saga hasn't got its charms. As we'll discuss over the next couple of weeks, this is a saga with more than its share of inane schemes and blood feuds, mm-hmm. and there's certainly nothing wrong with that. And it's got an interesting split focus, I think, with the first half of the story covering Oskil the Gothi, and his troublesome nephew, Vimon Fringe, and the second part telling the story of Oskil's son, Killerskuta. It creates a slightly cynical sense of narrative balance. Well, it sounds like you might actually like this one, do you? I'm admitting nothing. Uh, when we were talking before, you wanted to bring up the location of the story, so why don't we cover that before we get started? Okay, so uh, Rekdala Saga is set in the area around modern Mivatn, mm-hmm. uh, which is a volcanic lake in the northern quarter of Iceland. But it's set inland a bit, and that means that the story is taking place in a slightly different landscape than many of the other stories we've read, although a number of the sagas are set in the area. Now, Mivatn is often described by visitors as as if it's like being on another planet because mm. there's so much volcanic activity. Um, there are lava pillars, lava fields, uh, and there's also like uh, things called pseudo-craters. Ooh! Oh, I remember this one. Pseudo-craters. I know those mm-hmm. from my fifth grade science lessons. You remember back that far? Yeah. <laughs> they look like <laughs> almost like meteor strike sites or volcano craters, but mm-hmm. they're actually created by these superheated steam explosions just below the ground surface. Very good. That's exactly right. <laughs> I think you should get a gold star. woo New York City PS79 rules! <laughs> Couldn't be prouder. Uh, but okay, so... 
that same volcanic activity uh, gives rise to the odd qualities of Mivatan that you were hinting at. Right. I mean, the, the lake is what's called a, a eutrophic lake, which means that there's nutrient-rich waters and they support a, a remarkable amount of plant life, especially mm. water plants. And in that respect, it's an abundant place compared to most of the inland of Iceland. Well, okay, but that natural beauty doesn't necessarily make life any easier for the local residents. Right, although it does make it prettier, I think. Uh, and it can lead to <laughs> higher populations of ducks and fish. Uh, and in fact, today, there's a lot of ducks living in the area. Mm. Well, those are tasty. Mm-hmm. Uh, but of course, Mivatn means Lake of the Midges. Yes, it does. All that nutrient-rich water supports a teeming insect population in the summer months, and it can make things very unpleasant for people live- living there. That's right, and you can find any number of videos of clouds of midges floating around. Is that there. true? I've looked. <laughs> Absolutely. It's pretty disgusting. Not gross. Um, anyway, so that's the setting of our story, and the narrative, to some degree, is going to have something in common with sagas like Erbidja Saga or Ljosvetninga Saga, in which we see the struggles of various clan-affiliated groups to dominate an area with limited space and resources. Right. So uh, what about the saga itself, John? Okay, so this saga is generally regarded as the work of someone who didn't so much write a saga as record a series of local stories. Mm-hmm. And when those stories conflicted, the author simply acknowledges the conflict and moves on. Well, you know, unsurprisingly, uh, Jonas Christensen has something to say about this. Doesn't he always? Mm-hmm. He says, Rektala Saga is primitive in composition. Oh. Essentially a collection of short stories which are often clumsily or tenuously linked, and the narrative as a whole is rather halting. That is not complimentary. No, uh, and we've got a lot of his uncomplimentary comments about the sagas, (laughs) don't we? Uh, He also says it reads like the work of an unpracticed author who recorded oral traditions that were multifarious and conflicting. So, uh, yeah. He's not a fan. No, and Paul Schock isn't a fan either. He says, the style is clear but tedious. Instead of crisp dramatic dialogue, we find here long, dreary passages of indirect discourse. You know... Again, in terms of selling the merchandise, I really wish I could disagree with him. Right, me too. But uh, I think they nail it pretty accurately, especially with the lack of dialogue. It's kind of just one paragraph after another. Right. And as you hinted, they're not alone. Mm -hmm. A lot of scholars pretty much ignore this saga, and the ones who cover it rarely strew rose petals in its path. Uh, Even Emily Lethbridge, who uh, spent a year traveling around Iceland while reading through all the sagas, says of it, It's a saga which tells of petty acts of thievery, disputes over honor, acts of unscrupulous cunning in order to gain political and social ascendancy. And much though I hate to admit to this, it's not a saga that I find the most interesting or engaging. When I arrived at Reykjavik, a village on the northern shore of the lake, my spirits sank. (laughs) Oh, wow. Uh, now, by the way, Lethbridge has a great blog about her trip through Iceland called The mm. Saga Steads of Iceland. It's really worth looking at, especially for any saga fans considering a trip to Iceland. It absolutely is. Uh, she's apparently, I don't know if you know this, Andy, she's apparently working on a book about the experience as well, hmm. which I'm looking forward to reading. Uh, now, as for Rekdala Saga, but the nicest thing anyone has to say about it comes from Theodore Anderson, who argues that Rekdala is essentially revisionist propaganda. Now, that's the nicest thing you could find. <laughs> I mean, that's not really a compliment or an insult. I don't know yeah. what that is. So, uh, revisionism of what? I'm guessing it's uh, the Viga Gloom saga, right? Exactly. Uh, this saga has a lot in common with Viga Gloom, which is a saga we'll get to very soon. Rekdala seems to be arguing for a kind of reevaluation of the other side of that conflict. Very much like what Finbogi saga did to Vatnsdala saga. Uh, Anderson actually speculates that both Rekdala saga 
and Vigagloom are written by the descendants of the two sides of the feud that happens at the center of both sagas. So we're not looking for objective attitudes in this saga, are we? No, we are not. Uh, Anderson says that the saga is, quote, almost startlingly explicit in its moral judgments. Well, he's right about that. I mean, it's made clear all the way through this one that we're meant to be completely on the side of Oskel Avenson, and at least mostly in sympathy with his son, Killer Skuta. Uh-huh. Uh, but of course, whenever you've got two sides of a story, you have the problem of figuring out whether either one has the claim on truth. That's true. And I guess we could probably assume there are elements of truth to each account, which is probably uh, maybe, more Maybe, but I, I tend to reject that as a resolution of the problem. I, I, I know what you mean. It feels like a cop-out to assume that each side is equally involved in distorting the facts. But, I mean, since the two sagas differ mostly in the motivations and behind-the-scenes activity rather than on the public facts of the story, mm-hmm. I think we can at least work with the idea that they're recounting a story that people would recognize as having a historical basis. I can work with that. And I like the I historical so. basis as a way of doing that. Mm-hmm. Uh, so long as we don't try to swallow that these specifics are going to be reliable. I mean, no. Christensen is right. This is a saga made up of oral legends. Because of that, there's a fair amount of invention in the narrative. And there's also going to be some degree of repetition and redundancy to the action. Excuse me, repetition and redundancy? (laughs) See, it's even got me doing it. (laughs) (laughs) But this is one of the defining characteristics of Reddaw Saga. The stories tend to circle around and repeat a fair amount. We'll do our best to keep the action clear and moving forward, but if you feel at certain points like you've heard a particular sequence of events before... You're probably not wrong. Or if you feel like you're completely lost. (laughs) Understandable. (laughs) But uh, speaking of unnecessary things that we've heard before, uh, how does this saga actually measure up in Hrofenkels? Oh, (laughs) it's not nice. Uh, I'm so glad you asked. Rick Dalla Saga tips the scales at a volcanic 2.6 Hrofenkels. That's quite respectable. You know, Mm -hmm. I, I have to say, it didn't seem that long when I was reading it. I thought the same thing, actually. Uh, yeah. But maybe we'll decide that we like the story more than the critics have done. Only one way to find out, John. Let's dig in. Part 1. The Ivanson Clan of Mivaten. So, as we'd expect, our story begins with a family tree. Yeah, but this one isn't nearly as bad as some of the others that we've seen, even though it confused mm. the hell out of me reading that first chapter. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> you know, at least when you look at it three times, you realize you're only given one family to, to learn right away. No, that's true. Uh, but it's still a substantial amount of information to absorb right off the bat. Yeah. I counted the members of this family, and there are 20 of them in a single paragraph right at the start. Which is why I got confused. But uh, let's mm-hmm. just stick to the important ones for now. Well, that's kind of the problem. Most of them are going to be important. <laughs> yeah. But, all right. In brief, we're dealing with two Norwegian brothers, Eivind and Kettle Thorstensen, who migrate to Iceland in about 970. Both brothers have families, but we're mainly concerned with Eivind's descendants. He has a son, Askel the Gothi, who has two sons named Skuta and Thorstein. Eivind also has two daughters named Thorbjorg and Fjordlif. I hope you have your pencil and paper handy, because you're going to need it. Now, we're going to cover this saga in two parts, which makes sense due to the split focus of the story. And the first half of the saga, what we're covering today, is really the saga of Askel and the sons of Fjordleaf. And the second half of the story will be that of Askel's son, Skuta, who's going to earn the nickname Killer Skuta for, uh, I think, Mm -hmm. distributing flowers or something like that. Right. No, it's a promising name, and I'm expecting big things from young Skuta. Yeah, well, unfortunately, he is overseas during the whole first part of the saga, Mm -hmm. so not only will we not be hearing from him much until the second episode, we won't see him at all. 
But That's I right. think everyone will find Skuta a lot of fun. So uh, look forward to the second half of this saga. But don't worry, we've got a few troublemakers to keep things interesting this time out. Oh, yes. Oskel's nephews are practically agents of chaos. Right. As I was saying, it's not just Oskel we're focusing on. It's also his sister Fjolif, Skuta's aunt, that we're worried about. Or rather, it's her kids. Uh, she marries a man called Thorir Leatherneck, and they have, well, a, a lot of children. <laughs> I mean, there are <laughs> six sons. Uh, there's Vemund Fringe, Herjof Hals, Ketil of Husevek, Askel, and Havard of Fersmuli. Now, those kids are technically the Thorisons, mm-hmm. but the saga author calls them Fjordlifsons to emphasize their family link to Askel Gothi. That's right, and this is quite a clan, and they're very busy. It is. Askel has a reputation as a good man of wise counsel, and really, the central conflict in the first half of this saga is Askel trying to deal with problems in the Mivatan region and to maintain order in the midst of his many contentious neighbors. As George Clark says, Askel is simply... A noble man who strives for peace. Noble? Well, we'll see. Because he spends an awful lot of time apologizing for everyone that he knows. (laughs) In some ways, this is a stock figure in the sagas. Njal from Njal Saga sometimes takes on this role. But but we can also think of my thingman, uh, Arnkill Thorolfsson from Erbigi Saga. Mm. Or your thingman, Ingemann the Old from Vatnsdal Saga. Mm -hmm. Or Vali from Vatnamana Saga. Yeah, I'm I'm not convinced about that one entirely. What? It's a classic case. All All right, all right, all right. Mm-hmm. As we're going to see, a great deal of Askel's time is going to be spent trying to smooth over the trouble his nephews stir up. Yes. All the Fjordlifusons are going to have a huge role to play in this saga, and the ringleader of the group is the oldest son, Vaymond Fringe. Okay, but let's be fair to these guys. The trouble in the region isn't always their fault, though it mostly is, and the saga's first <laughs> conflict is about a troublesome neighbor named Aistine Manison. Briefly, the story is that this Aistin has a grudge against Askel's clan due to a judgment Askel made against him over some firewood that he stole from Harvard Fjordlifusson's foster father. <laughs> and if you don't have your pencil out already, get it out now. Yeah, I'm already confused. <laughs> so, sometime later, when another nephew of Askel's named Thorstein Bolkeman arrives in the area with a shipload of cloth, Aistin tries to swindle him out of the goods in a sort of indirect stab at revenge. But Thorstein exercises his right to challenge a legal duel over the matter and wins by badly injuring Aistine's leg. Mm-hmm. Aistine is forced to pay up, along with a fine for losing the duel, and he has a limp for the rest of his life. And that is a lot of information to run through right at the outset. Well, there are going to be a lot of these sorts of episodes this time out. Mm-hmm. Um, as we've already said, the, the problem of this saga is that it's like reading a string of beads. Mm-hmm. It's all connected, but each one is essentially separate. So you're reading beads. I I don't really understand where that metaphor comes from. It's a Catholic thing. The important point is that a member of Askel's family has been ripped off by Aistin and takes legally sanctioned revenge. Why didn't you just say that? I mean, this is a duel of a more formal sort, but there's almost no information given about it. They just fight and and Thorstein wins. Pretty much, yeah. So I'm glad we covered all that. (laughs) So Thorstein ends up being a bit headstrong. His Mm. cousin Havard warned him against getting involved with Aistin, but but Aistin was offering a convenient and profitable deal, and Thorstein got suckered in. But fortunately, he's also pretty handy in a fight. Well, what's interesting about this for me is that we can learn something from the swindle. Thorstein Bokemon's ship is full of linen and cloth, and he's trading for the rough homespun wool cloth of Iceland. But the exchange rate is better than three to one. The deal Aistin offers is a thousand L's of homespun for 300 L's of the linen. Andy, do you remember what an L is? 
So you're going to test me on L's again? Because I know the answer now, but just don't ask me to add them up because then I'll, I'll inevitably screw <laughs> no, 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 no. that up. My, my point is the ratio. 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 Where fall up that ratio? My point is just that the ratio of the wool cloth to the linen is important. The relative valuation of the two cloths tells us something about the profit margin on these international shipping transactions. Or about the quality of the merchandise Thorstein's brought with him. That's true. That's true. Mm-hmm. And now that I think about it, it could also be that Aistine intentionally offers an overgenerous deal. I mean, he's planning on ripping Thorstein off so he can afford to appear open-handed. But instead of getting the cloth, he gets that leg wound. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So now Aistine has a strong grudge against the Mivatan clan. But he acts as if all is forgiven. And when Hals Fjordifersen moves to a farm nearby, Aistine strikes up a friendship with him. So, Hall's uncle and brother have already had trouble with Aistine. His mm-hmm. cousin nearly had to chop the guy's leg off to get his stuff back from him, but, but Hall's is suddenly going to be pals with him? Yeah, I know. Doesn't make any sense. Yeah, he's, yeah. He, he just deserves what's going to happen to him, which is <laughs> more or less exactly what Alska tells Hall's. It's harsh, though. I, I tend to read this as evidence of something that we've talked about before on the show. Icelanders were involved in lawsuits and disagreements with their neighbors all the time. It seems like most of the time people played fair. You made your case as strongly as possible, you took it to court, you got a judgment, and that was it. Then it was over. Hmm. You're not supposed to hold a grudge. Well, I understand that's the way it's supposed to work, but it seems to Mm -hmm. ignore some fairly fundamental aspects of human nature, uh, which is what the sagas are really all about. Um, And in this case, (laughs) the nature of someone like Aistine, who's already shown that he's the sort uh, that takes a petty revenge over any kind of settlement. Now, Mm -hmm. I'm not saying you can't move on, but the author calls it a strong friendship between Halls and Aistine. And that's just not smart. Why is he being well, no, so friendly? I agree with that. But I think we can see in this the evidence that someone like Aistine is unusually vindictive. Mm. The culture of Iceland is built around the assumption that the parties in a lawsuit were supposed to abide by whatever the outcome of the lawsuit was, whether or not they always did. Right? Of course they didn't always live up to it, but they were meant to, and they were expected to culturally. Okay, so let's get back to Halls now, The, the this idiot who expects Aistine to change his tune suddenly. <laughs> wow. Um, so Aistine's next plan revolves See, around... He's already at it again. He's already <laughs> yeah, plotting. Yeah, well, yes. You're very smart. Shut up. <laughs> his plan revolves around a cousin of Halls named Bjorn. Uh, Bjorn wants to make a voyage overseas, and Aistine approaches Bjorn with an offer. He'll bankroll Bjorn's trip abroad in exchange for a small favor. Now, Bjorn knows, I, uh, Bjorn knows Aistine's character, and he also seems to know the conventions of the sagas. I mean, this kind of offer almost always leads to the same thing. So he immediately says that he doesn't want to assassinate anyone. Like, <laughs> he just predicts. <laughs> which is great. I like that yeah. he just comes right out with that up front. Mm-hmm. It, which also, it also does suggest, by the way, that Aistine's got a bit of a reputation, since he assumes yeah. that's where this is heading. Uh, but Aistine's not thinking of anything as crude as a killing. no. Aistine has a cunning plan. Ugh. He has Bjorn drive some sheep to one of Hall's pens, lock them in, and then throw his gloves and staff next to a hole in the ice on Hall's pond. Now, there are a lot of these little plots in this saga, and we're not, we, we just can't go into all of them in detail. But mm-hmm. this one's worth looking at, in part because of a quirk of the author's writing that we referenced earlier. He doesn't seem to trust the reader to get the point of what's happening. Yeah, no, it's true. When Bjorn drives 15 of Aistine's sheep into Hall's pen, drops his glove by a hole in the ice, and then disappears from Iceland, 
It shouldn't take a Sherlock Holmeson to work out that this is a frame up. A Sherlock what? Holmeson. <laughs> That's terrible, Watson. Go on. Uh, so most saga authors would just set this up and then tell what happens when the sheep are discovered. But right. but no, this author adds the line. The fact is, Aistine's idea in telling Bjorn to throw his staff and gloves beside the hole in the ice was that people would then suppose Bjorn had drowned, and that was the cause of his disappearance. Oh, you don't say. Yeah. I mean, it's pretty clumsy writing by saga standards. I agree. Oh, do you? I, you know, I was expecting a little bit of a fight from you. No, 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 no. I think there's real evidence all the way through this saga of a somewhat less sure hand than most. Finally, we agree on something. See? No, it's it's not incompetent work by any mm. means, but it's got these little moments where you can tell the writer is sort of hedging his bets. Or right? figuring it out. He's not confident in his writing, and he doesn't trust us to connect the dots. Okay, so let's get back to this. Aistine's plan seems to work out at first. He finds the sheep in the morning, he then accuses Hals of stealing them, and then he demands self-judgment in the case. Right. So Hals panics. He doesn't know why the sheep are in his pen, but he knows he didn't put them there. Mm-hmm. So he runs to his brother Havard and his uncle Askel for help. Now, running to Uncle Askel for help is going to prove mm-hmm. to be a major pastime of the Fjordleaver songs. Oh, yes, uh, yes. But this time, Askel points out that it was stupid of Halls to befriend Aistine because <laughs> he won't be good for others or for you. And he recommends that Halls and his brother Vaymond go abroad in advance of the lawsuit since he probably can't win it. It's just a no-win situation. Right. No, it's good advice and, in fact, turns out that way. Everybody in the community suspects that Aistine has framed Halls, but there's no evidence. And without evidence, there's not much they can do. Yeah, and the whole idea of setting up a scene as if Bjorn had drowned doesn't fool anyone. We're told right. many thought there was a connection between Bjorn's disappearance and Aistine's sheep, and they said it was dubious and not <laughs> at all unexpected, given Bjorn's poverty and stupidity and Aistine's cunning and malice. <laughs> so much for the cunning plan. No. This is much more uh, along the lines it, of a Baldrick cunning plan. Right. <laughs> but again, they don't have a choice. The circumstantial evidence is pretty strong, and in some cases that's enough. And so Halls is outlawed for the theft. But that's almost irrelevant because he and Vaymond are already overseas and hunting down their cousin Bjorn the Stupid. Right. Well, that's, <laughs> that's not officially his nickname. Uh, but it does fit him, though. I think it's, it's good. Yeah, 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 that's probably fair. I mean, evidence for that is it doesn't take them long to find him right. <laughs> in the world, which suggests he's not doing a great job of hiding. And their line of questioning when they find him is basically just saying, you did it, didn't you? Didn't you? I, and, and him saying, um, uh, I just thought it was best to leave Iceland at night alone without my family or my gloves. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, in fairness, you can't buy a pig and then get mad that it's not a horse. What? You hire an idiot, you get an idiot is what I'm saying. So, uh-huh. yeah. <laughs> so, Bjorn admits what he did, and the next summer the brothers return with Bjorn and keep him hidden with their brother, Kedla Husevik, until Oskol the Gothi can decide what to do. That was really fast. And there, yeah. <laughs> there's a real sense here of the limitations of the story for the author. I mean, we don't even get any details about where they find Bjorn. He just goes abroad, and that's where they find him, and then they come no, back. No, it's true. It's true. It's as if... In it, for this author, everywhere that's not Iceland is just a big ocean port called Abroad. Mm-hmm. And that's where you go when you leave Iceland. Now, Uncle Askel decides a show of force is needed to overturn the verdict against Hals, so he gathers 60 men together and they ride to Aistine's farm. But it turns out that Aistine knew that they were coming somehow and also has 60 men gathered around, most of whom are mm. followers of Aistine's friend Thorkel Thorgerson from Ljosvatn. 
Right. Now, Thorkel's someone we'll see again in other sagas. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's in Njal Saga, for example, and there he's called Thorkel the Bully. And he's also important in Losvetninga Saga. Yeah. Is he Here, the though, he's son of my Thingman Thorgir? What's that? I'm sorry. Is he the son of my Thingman Thorgir from Finnbogis Saga? I believe he might be. Well, there you go. Right. Here he's just a little figure, though. But he's still an, an important one at this moment. Uh, when Oskol produces Bjorn and accuses Aesin of faking the entire plot, Aesin, of course, denies everything. Which is just ridiculous. I mean, Bjorn's right there. It doesn't matter. Circumstantial. But- Part of the plan was that Bjorn was supposed to have drowned, <laughs> and he's standing right there. Yeah, but that's just an inconvenient detail to a guy like Aistine. <laughs> Come on. Well, unfortunately for Aistine, Thorkel Thorgerson is a lot less obstinate. Mm-hmm. Once it becomes crystal clear that Aistine's lying, Thorkel withdraws his support. Good boy, and Without Thorkel. his men, Aistine is pretty much helpless against the might of Askel's force. But Oskol's a law-abiding sort of guy. I mean, uh, yeah. it, it, almost disgustingly so. He doesn't kill Aesin on the spot. He just summonses him. And then at the Allthing, Aesin is outlawed. And once that's over, the Mivatan clan rides directly from the Allthing to Aesin's farm to execute the sentence. And Aesin, for that matter. Ah, that's cute. I like that. See, uh, now that Aesin is outlawed, Oskol's got the law on his side, even if he kills Aesin. Sure. But when Oskal and his nephews arrive at Aistine's farm, they find the entire place in flames. Mm-hmm. Aistine, of course, knew he was going to lose the case, and so in spite, he destroyed everything. Drove his livestock into the buildings and then set them on fire. Jeez. And according to the saga, he also killed his household members who were inside. Oh, that's some serious spite right there. <laughs> but what about those poor animals? We don't even get to know how many there were. So the animal death count and the people death counts all messed up. Because <laughs> Sorry. Anyway, what about uh, Aistine? Does he at least go out in a blaze of glory? Well, no one really knows. Oh. Uh, we're told that in this matter, people say various things about what happened to Aistine himself. And apparently what happened is some people say that he took ship to Norway and from there to Denmark. But others say that he was inside the farm when it burned. And the saga author concludes the section by saying... But for all that, we do not know for sure that it, what it was that was the cause of his death. Now, isn't it possible that uh, he was burned alive by his enemies in his household? That makes a hell of a lot more sense than he set it all on fire and either burned inside or ran away. But, well, uh, what I don't know what that it's of... meant to make a lot of sense. But, of course, if if we're suggesting, if you're suggesting that Askel and his nephews burned the building, obviously this author is not about to include that in his saga. Exactly. So we're not going to get a clear answer, are we? No, no, we're not. Um, the author of Rekdal's saga does this a lot, actually. He offers multiple possible versions of what happened and leaves it up to the reader to decide which is most likely. And when he does that, he seems to be citing conflicting sources for his information, which from our point of view is fascinating. Well, I mean, at least it suggests that he's trying to conflate various local and oral accounts mm-hmm. with the written record, and and with Viga Gloom saga, of course. Right. But unlike most saga writers, he's not trying to smooth out the rough edges where his accounts join up. Instead, we get something that feels at times a little bit uncertain, maybe a little bit unfinished, but for me, at times, maybe all the more believable because of it. Wow. Now, that's a long cry from where you were when we started talking about this. Well, no, no. I, I mean, I, I still think there are some real problems here. And I was being careful in my phrasing. I'm not saying the text is believable. I'm saying it feels like a believable account. Okay. I'm just not sure whether that's a deliberate effect 
rather than an accident of the saga's flawed composition. Interesting. Now, if, if we're offering responses here, then I'll just say that mm-hmm. I tend to read the first part of the saga as a fairly simple compilation of local stories, like almost like a historian sitting down to kind of compile that history. Um, mm. So I think that they have origins in some kind of truth, which interests me. But I think that the saga compiler is aware of the nature of oral narrative. Uh, and that's probably why he doesn't commit to any one version of uh, Aistine's future. Excellent. Well, okay. Aistine's gone, however he dies. Mm-hmm. But the men of Mivaten are just getting started. Part 2. Hanif, the Sheep Thief. Now, we're going to move pretty quickly through this next section, but it's important in setting up the rising tensions in the region. This is just one of those sagas that has so many things happening per page that it can get out of hand if we try to go into all the details. Yeah, but we can't cut Hanif out completely. He's one of those love-to-hate-him figures that the sagas are so good at creating. If you say so, but uh, go ahead and explain who he is very briefly. You and your briefly. (laughs) Okay, so Hanif is a local farmer. He's well-off financially, but has trouble keeping workers because of his obnoxious personality. Hmm. In fact, during his introduction into the action, the saga just dumps on him. Not much good will be said of Hanif in this story, and he was ill-spoken of generally. (laughs) The author really seems to enjoy taking sheep sh- sheep shots. Sheep shots. <laughs> I get it? Sheep and Hanif. Yeah. yeah, the author really seems to enjoy taking cheap shots at uh, old Hanif. You know, Andy, in some respects, he actually reminds me of your old friend Henthor. Oh, damn his name. <laughs> but uh, that's actually true. There are a lot of parallels between these two characters. Both are wealthy men without friends. Both lack social standing. And both, they're treated with barely concealed contempt by the authors of their sagas and everyone <laughs> around them. Right. And as we're about to see, there's another parallel. Hanef buys his way into a powerful family by fostering a child, just like Henthor did. That's right. Yeah, this is looking like a mini trope in the sagas, uh, or else we're looking at two sagas that draw independently from the same kind of oral tradition. Now, among mm-hmm. other things, both sagas are written at the end of the 13th century, and the sheer number of parallels between these two characters uh, ends up being pretty remarkable. Mm-hmm. Okay, so Hanif is basically a second coming of Henthor. Now I really don't like this guy. <laughs> well, and as we were just hinting, Hanif is foster father to Vaman Fringe's daughter, Thorkatla. Mm-hmm. Oskal Gothi hears about this arrangement and thinks it's a terrible idea, of course. But Vaman insists that Hanif is a popular, upstanding man. And mentions that Hanif also gave him a lot of gifts to seal the deal. So Vaman is clearly a man of great integrity. You know, as we're going through this, I, I just want to point out that Vaymond is a bit of an idiot. Yeah, that's probably fair. Yeah. Uh, of course, we've seen other sagas make this sort of link between wealth and virtue ironically. Remember that uh, Bondamana saga's best moments come from these cynical jokes about the equation of gold and good. Oh, that's so cute. What a nice turn of phrase. Uh, but <laughs> but I don't think that I'm ready to give Rekdala saga that kind of credit. I, I just don't no. think that this is an author who's making ironic jokes so much as Vayman's just too willing to accept gifts and friendship from troublesome people. And then he just tries to cover his tracks afterwards. I agree. I agree. But let's get back to work here. Okay. This was your digression. So don't tell me to get oh, back sorry. to work. Oh, sorry. You're right. You're right. Work. So Hanif has a neighbor named Hraven of Lundabreka. And one day, 16 of Hraven's sheep go missing. And no one knows what happened to them. We, on the other hand, have a pretty shrewd guess about where they ended up. Well, yeah. Uh, But the mystery is unsolved, until Mm -hmm. a farmhand of Hanef's named Thorley Fox notices that Hanef keeps leaving the farm during the night. So one night, Thorleaf goes looking for Hanef, and when he stumbles in the dark, he lands in a puddle of blood. 
Right, but Thorleaf quickly realizes that he's not wounded, which means that the blood came from somewhere else. So he searches the area until he finds a camouflage cellar, uh, uh, <clears throat> until he finds a camouflage cellar entrance in a nearby hillside. Inside of this thing, he finds the butchered skins and remains of several sheep and the severed head of a distinctively marked ram. It's so gruesome. I mean, just just imagine finding this charnel house at night and knowing that Hanef is somewhere out there in the dark. But Thorleaf's got a steady nerve, you know. He hides the severed mm-hmm. head under his cloak and then finds Hanef on the other side of a hill in front of a cooking fire. And there's an awkward mm. conversation where Hanef tries to claim that he's cooking at night because his wife is lousy company in bed. But uh, <laughs> I just like to come out here and eat sheep by myself. Are you buying any of this? <laughs> but but Thorleaf then quits his job on the spot and leaves as quickly as he can. Right. And now I, I think there's a slightly sinister undertone to that meeting as well. Mm-hmm. Hanef keeps trying to get Thorleaf to sit down by the fire with him. And it just doesn't look like a safe situation. I mean, it's pretty clear they both know Hanef's busted if Thorleaf tells anyone what he's seen. So, so I think that, it's... That's all the more reason for Thorleaf to get the hell out of there, isn't it? Well, I mean, I know I wouldn't want to hang around. No. Uh, but Thorleaf's not done yet. That severed head he has hidden in his cloak is proof of Hanef's theft. Yes. So Thorleaf takes it to Hraven the farmer. But let's be clear that Thorleaf's no saint. He insists on a bribe of a mm-hmm. hundred pieces of silver before he reveals the sheep's head. Well, I mean, Andy, there's such a thing as a finder's fee. Oh, for a dead sheep's head? No, for information. Uh-huh, yeah. Kraven can now lay a lawsuit against Hanef for the theft. And since Hanef is insisting on his innocence, that's exactly what happens. Of course. Uh, which means that Hanef calls in his new friend, Vaymund Fringe, to support him. Mm. And Vaymund, who's an idiot, believes Hanef is innocent <laughs> and agrees to help him. And things are about to get even more complicated because Kraven calls on a powerful relative of his named Steingrim Ornolfsson, to counter Hanef's friendship with Vaymund. And Steingrim is going to prove to be an important figure throughout this story. Mm-hmm. But at first, he's merely backing up Robin's lawsuit. Right, but even that is enough to panic Hanef, who really doesn't have the stomach for making powerful enemies. He confesses his theft to Vaymund, but it's kind of too late to smooth things over at this point. Mm-hmm. And now Vaymund has to take over the defense and Hanef's property. Well, he doesn't have to. No, I think he kind of does. Ugh. I mean, this is a question of honor. Vaymond is linked to Hanef through the fosterage and those gifts he received. And he's allowed his name to be attached to the case. Mm-hmm. Finding out now that Hanef is guilty doesn't absolve Vaymond of his part in the case. It's tough to be a thingman. Well, and it'd take a man of pretty strong moral convictions to take the public embarrassment of pulling out now. And I think we already know that Vaymond's just not that guy. Right, and that's the point that I'm making. The compulsion mm-hmm. to take over the case isn't due to Vaymond's strength of character. It's because he's essentially weak-hearted. The game of honor that we like to talk about is played a number of ways. And there's a kind of advanced move here that someone like Vaymond just can't make. You mean by, what, by like showing his moral honor through allowing himself to lose the case once he finds out that he's in the wrong? Exactly. That's it. Well, that may- I mean, that makes sense. But again, that's just not Vaymond's style. Mm-mm. Anyway. Uh, Askel gets wind of all this and just goes off on Hanef, who's now a member of Vaymond's household because Vaymond has absorbed his holdings. Askel calls him a slave, predicts that Hanef will cause misfortune for many men, and generally indulges in a bit of I told you so over the whole thing. And meanwhile, the case gets heard at the thing, and in a not at all shocking turn of events, Hanef is outlawed <laughs> for theft. Yeah, I mean, it'd be great to set up some kind of suspense here, but it's just not terribly surprising. No, I think the severed sheep's head would probably do it. 
<laughs> that thing's got to be getting pretty gamey by the time the all Ugh. thing rolls around in the summer. Yeah, all the more reason to end the case quickly. It's like the judges, are, all right, all right, okay, we'll outlaw him. Just take that foul thing away. <laughs> uh, but it's not over yet. Uh, we've been hard on Veyman, and it's true he's a bit of a knucklehead. But he's not a villain. He now not regards exactly. it as his responsibility to help Hanef leave Iceland into outlawry. And so he makes plans to bring him to a ship. Now, the problem with this is that Steingrim is taking this whole thing very, very seriously. And he's actually mm-hmm. paid off a farmer named Troy to come over. I'm sorry. Uh, and he's actually paid off a farmer named Troy to cover one route to the shore while Steingrim himself covers another. Now, both mm-hmm. groups are under orders to kill Hanef as an outlaw if they catch him. Now, this is where the location of the saga becomes important. We're talking about an area built around an inland lake, not the ocean shore. Oh, yeah, and, and that makes a real difference. Um, getting out of Mivotn as an outlaw is much harder than getting out of Snaffelsness or the Westfjords. Right. There's actually some really exciting build-up here. I think this is one of the author's better moments. Yeah. The saga keeps moving back and forth between Steingrim's plans and Veyman's attempts to build a large forest to punch through to the shore. Meanwhile, Askel the Gothi offers a different solution. He asks Veyman to hand Hanef over to him, and I'll deal with him. Why does he sound so sinister all of a sudden? <laughs> because he's got a kind of voice like that. But Askel's supposed to be a force for peace in the saga, and he's basically offering to kill Hanef quietly? I mean, that, <laughs> I guess that it's the, the sinister voice is suiting here. Um, mm-hmm. Hanef sucks, but that's kind of a cold thing to do. <laughs> well, it would keep the peace. <laughs> yeah, you're right. Uh, and again, I think Oskel's fear is that Hanef's going to get some good men killed. Mm-hmm. Maybe he's going to fit Hanef for some cement shoes. Hanef Bratzi sleeps with the fishes. <laughs> oh, God, John. Hanef Bratzi? Let me guess. Uh, it's it's an old Icelandic message. That's Why not? <laughs> They've got fish around. Uh, anyway, uh, Veyman refuses to abandon Hanef and instead uses his uncle Askel's name to call together a band of his neighbors to escort him and Hanef to the shore. And he does use that name without his uncle's permission, by the way. Mm-hmm. Uh, the men who he calls include Thorir the Goatbeard, Ljot of Thvera, and Thorod Grinder, and all their followers, uh, along with a young man named Thorkel of Hrausnes, who lives alone with his mother. <laughs> I don't like the sound of that. Not just the <laughs> living alone with his mother, but the, you know, the whole thing. Thorkel just seems like a sad story waiting to happen. Well, just wait, just wait. Uh, so, Veymund has 18 men, and he marches straight to the shore. But Hroy, the farmer who's been paid by Steingrim, has 30 men, and gets a tip-off that Veymund's on the move. The two groups confront one another at a narrow spot between two rises, and when Veymund refuses to give Hanef to Hroy, the two sides attack. And this is a very chaotic battle. It's fought in mm-hmm. cramped quarters, and there's 48 men involved, which is yeah. a pretty large number. Yeah, uh, and because of the difficult fighting conditions, spears are being thrown all over the place because everybody can't get at each other. Uh, Roy's foot gets pierced right away, and he then throws a spear that catches young Thorkel of Hrausness in the gut and no. kills him. <laughs> yeah, sadly, that was sort of inevitable. Yeah. <laughs> Worst I shouldn't laugh ever. about the poor kid. <laughs> but he's hardly the only one to die. Roy's mm. brother, Helgi, is killed in the fighting along with one of his slaves, and on Veyman's side, Thorod Grinder is killed in the fighting. Um, so all those poor ladies will have to do without his grinding. Um, oh. oh. And Hanif is also killed. What? You realize that refers to wailing, right? Sure it does. I, or am I, I tipping my hand on nicknames already? <laughs> oh. uh, I thought it was uh, about his clubbing activities. Right. Um, and as you said, Hanif is also killed. Yes, he but is. But even here, the author can't resist a shot at Hanif. Mm-hmm. All we're told about his death is, 
Hanif also had fallen. Few thought there was much harm done. That's not even the last indignity <laughs> Hanif suffers, though. It's true. The fight ends with Oskil Gothi and a local man named Thorhall, who both arrive with a total of 60 men and threaten to attack both groups if they don't stop. Well, it was nice of Askel to get involved. <laughs> what do you mean? Well, I mean, he's kind of been in the background of the story so far. He's just sort oh, of yeah. there when people get into trouble. Yeah, he, the run he is. But, but I think that's a deliberate choice by the author. He, mm-hmm. He's more of an advisor figure, and his role in the saga is to try to calm things down. Uh, not that he's mm-hmm. in the same league, but like we said earlier, he's kind of a Njal figure in that respect. No, that's, I, that's, a, that's an absolutely fair point. That's a nice point. Uh, of course, it's also a bit of a problem. With Skuta out of the country for the entire first half of the saga, and Askel serving as an often ignored counselor, this saga's got some real problems when it comes to losing sight of the men who are supposed to be in the center of its story. Well, I mean, as we said earlier, again, it's a loosely constructed saga by any standard. I mean, Askel's often called the central figure, but I think it's hard to see that when reading the saga. He's very mm-hmm. much in the background. You don't get to mm-hmm. see him actually doing stuff a lot. He just kind of appears, says something, and goes away. I would say mm-hmm. that the central figure of the first half is actually Vaymond. Um, okay, but Askel's about to have a very direct hand on oh, things right now. Of course he does, <laughs> yes. He's just waiting for us to complain and for me to make an ass of myself. Um, although even now, he is still serving in that advisory role. Mm-hmm. Once everyone calms down, they agree to let Askel settle the affair right on the spot. And he, by the way, immediately equates Hanif's death with that of Helgi's slave Ooh. and says they pay for each other. Now, that's a nice payoff to Asko calling Hanif a slave earlier. I really <laughs> like that. Uh, absolutely. And and once all the other killings and wounds have been tallied up, a settlement figure is reached and paid on the spot, and all sides go home content. But that's not to say that there's no ill will left mm-hmm. over. Uh, Veyman knows that it was Steingrim who set those men in his path, and that's an insult that has to be answered. Part 3, Oskol Gothi versus Veyman Fringe versus Steingrim Ornolfsson. Now, you might not believe this, but this next section starts simply. <laughs> Veyman twice... I don't believe it. No, you won't. Listen to this. Veyman twice borrows Oskol's ferry, once to bring in a catch of fish and once to collect salvage from a stretch of coastline. Now, both times... He ends up behaving badly toward men that are in Oskel's employment, and Oskel has to smooth things over for Vaymond. Yeah. The problem on both occasions seems to be that Vaymond objects to the amount of freedom Oskel gives his servants. Hmm. Yeah, you know, that's a really good point. But part of what these little incidents show is that Vaymond's the sort of guy that likes to throw his weight around with his social inferiors, while mm-hmm. Oskel treats everyone with respect. Well, everyone except Hanif. Well, yeah, but, you know, once you uh, become a no-good, filthy sheep thief, then you don't deserve it. <laughs> uh, so, in the first case, Oskel's man, Kalf, takes the initiative to sell a fish catch in exchange for a cow. Vaiman finds out about this and threatens to kill Kalf. But Askel later confirms that Kalf is allowed to make these kind of deals. Uh, in order to soothe Kalf's wounded pride, Oskel lets him keep the cow for himself and later gives Kalf a second cow to match it. And this just adds to Askel's reputation, of course. I mean, the saga says, Few men would like him for fairness and judgment and generosity toward everyone. Mm. He's really an angel. <laughs> uh, now, the second incident is an echo of that first one. Uh, Vaiman pushes around another of Askel's servants, this time over selling a load of wreck salvage. And then he steals a whale from the men who bought the salvage. Askel refuses to have any part of the whale, 
And this time it's clear Askel is losing patience with his nephew. Mm-hmm. You often spoil what I've arranged for you, even though it's never to your disadvantage. Now, Vayman goes home with his nose in a sling, but he does keep the whale. So uh, the uncle-nephew relationship's starting to get a little bit strained, isn't it? Well, I mean, honestly, who can blame the guy? It's, it's almost like Vayman is trying to start fights everywhere he goes. Mm-hmm. And it's putting Askel into some damned awkward situations. True, but uh, I think you left out the best part there, Johnny. Uh, which is? Well, you know, the other side of these episodes is that in both cases, the people who buy the fish or the lumber are actually Steingrim Ondelson's in-laws. Mm. It's his father-in-law, Thorbjorn of Arskog, and his brothers-in-law, Stein and Helgi. Aha. Uh-huh. So, Vayman's blustering is also about throwing gas on the embers of his feud with Steingrim. Mm-hmm. And this is why it's important to keep track of all these relationships in these sagas. Mm-hmm. And we haven't done one of these sagas with such complex uh, interfamily relationships in a, in a long time. So, right. You know, right. it's a nice reminder of what the sagas really have to offer. But so, and the text is a little bit ambiguous about this, but you think it's a uh, deliberate act on Vayman's part. I think so. I mean, Steingrim's mm-hmm. trying to keep his in-laws calm, but he's definitely getting annoyed about Veyman's nonsense. Um, mm-hmm. So he even tells his in-laws to follow Askel's example and not quarrel over some whale blubber. But it's pretty clear that Veyman's pushing Steingrim's buttons on purpose. <laughs> yes. uh, so while Veyman is behaving like more and more of a jackass, and he and Steingrim are continuing to circle around one another, Askel is busy dealing with his other chieftainly duties. After a hard winter... Oskel has to face down Lyot of Vera and his followers who want to make sacrifices to the gods, kill the elderly, and expose babies to reduce the mouths to feed in Rekidal. Of course. Now, <laughs> Lyot was one of Vaemon's supporters in that fight over Hanef, but here he's turning up in his capacity as a priest for the local pagan temple. And mm-hmm. we haven't seen this uh, this side of exposing children practices before. Mm-hmm. It's just flat out killing babies because of the danger of starvation. I mean... I think it's I – pro- I suppose it's probably implicit in the concept of exposure, isn't it? I guess historically, yeah, it probably is, but but not in the sagas that we've seen so far. Mm-hmm. I mean, if we count up the exposure cases that we've seen, it's been due to – I don't know. Let's see. There was a prophecy. There was a jealous wife resenting her husband's bastard child. And in, in Finnbogi's case, it was out of a husband's spite. Well, true, but those are being used for dramatic effect. Mm-hmm. Well, I think we do know too. that in, in this culture and in others – Letting one child die to save the rest might unfortunately be a fact of life when food is scarce. This episode is probably closer to that reality than the other ones that we've seen up to this point. Yeah, I'm actually surprised to hear you say that because I I don't really think this episode represents any sort of reality for the pre-Christian Icelandic society. Why not? Well, because if you look at this passage, they directly associate the exposure of children and the slaughtering of the elderly with the pagan religion. And mm-hmm. where is the evidence of anything like that in pre-Christian societies? It's almost as if the author is some kind of cleric trying to imagine what pagans might have done, but <laughs> only has the most misinformed and tainted visions of what pagan Icelanders were actually like. Well, and that's certainly possible, especially since the saga author really goes out of his way to establish Askel as an early adopter of Christianity, or or else maybe... Or, I don't or know. maybe like proto-Christian. Yes, exactly, exactly. Yeah. Um, Askel argues that it's better... To do the creator honor by supporting the elderly and contributing money for bringing up children. Why does he still sound sinister at the end there? Because that's his voice. We're going to contribute money for bringing up children. <laughs> he can't children. help it. See? He just sounds like that. <laughs> sure he does. I would just make him sound a little more saintly. <laughs> 
And what I think this means is that we're seeing some of the Christian church's emphasis on public charity as an element of good living. Mm-hmm. And we know that this ideology influenced medieval Icelandic law because we see rules outlining social welfare for the needy in the Gragas. That's right. Uh, the Gragas provides a pretty detailed code of ethics for exactly this kind of situation. Yeah. And exposure of infants and slaughtering the elderly are never mentioned. No, strangely uh, so, enough. So you're suggesting that this is part of the text designed to help promote those values? Perhaps, though the social welfare system was established long before we believe that this saga was ever written. Um, mm-hmm. so I, but I suppose it's possible that this reflects an effort to maybe reinvigorate those values. Yeah, that's interesting. I can see that. I do think that there's something to um, this idea that, that there's a reality, a harsh reality here that you know a weaker child, a sickly child, or a disabled child might uh, face exposure in a difficult year, in a year mm-hmm. where there's little food. But certainly we can suspect that that would have been the case before or after Christianity. Mm. I, I just, I doubt that that was something that was going on in Iceland at the, mm-hmm. at the level that they're talking about here. Oh, no, no, no not, the, not in any kind of like, why? No, no, is clearly uh, yeah. a devil, right? He's clearly a bad man. Yeah. We don't slaughter the elderly. Right. It's just not done. Right. Anyway, this is very much the perspective, I think, of a later writer in a long since Christianized Iceland. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think this helps to make the author's point which is that Askel is a good Gothi, mm-hmm. and, as well, a good man from a Christian perspective. In other words, from the later age of Iceland's point of view. And, and meanwhile, Vaymund's a pain in the butt no matter what religion you follow or what age you're in. <laughs> and he's not done yet. No, no, he's just getting started, in fact. Right. I mean, sometime after the first two incidents, Vaymund and his brother Herjolf, uh, they meet with a Norwegian ship's captain who arrives with a load of lumber to sell, and we know how valuable lumber is. Mm-hmm. Now, the brothers pick out the lumber that they want, but the captain then informs them that Steingrim has already spoken for both lots, and he's already paid for the best lumber, which Vaymund wants for himself. So, of course, they're disappointed and they go home empty-handed. No! Vaymund <laughs> hatches a plan. Oh, not a cunning plan for once? No, no, no. There's nothing cunning about most of what Vaymund does. He <laughs> simply says loudly, while slipping a Norwegian a small bribe, that Steingrim bought wood from another ship. He no longer needs this lumber. <laughs> <laughs> and then he, uh, you know, he buys the lumber for himself and makes plans to have it brought home by his servants. Yeah. I mean, the Norwegian is perfectly happy to make this deal. But Herjolf doesn't want any part of it. He says he'd rather acquire lumber which others had not previously bought. Which is pretty smart of him. Yeah, well, it seems like the entire family is starting to realize that Vaymond is a bit of a problem child. I, I guess they are, but but he's right. It's, it's probably not wise to get too directly involved. Mm-hmm. When Steingrim finds out what's happened, he makes a point of not showing anger toward the ship's captain, but he does send his friends, Raven of Lundabreka, and Thorle Fox to find out what had happened to the lumber. When Raven and Thorle find Vaymund's servants transporting the lumber, they just uh, kill him and take the lumber back to Steingrim anyway. <laughs> so much for not quarreling over trifles. Well, I think this sort of is kind of like the three strikes rule. It's, and it's hardly a trifle. <laughs> okay. Uh, but still, it's a pretty major ramping up of hostilities to murder a bunch of servants. Oh, yeah. And it is murder, by the way, right? Specifically murder. No one announces the killings, and the bodies are just covered with sticks and leaves. Well, it, it certainly gets the point across, I think. <laughs> Vaymond's shocked <laughs> when he finds the bodies, and probably because of the lack of announcement of the killing. They're just mm-hmm. uh, left there, like you said. I mean, this is serious right. stuff. Yeah, it is. And Vaymond thinks he's got a good case. He asks good old Uncle Askel to take the case, and even though Askel says that Vaymond already got what he deserved... 
He agrees to act as Veyman's factor in negotiating a settlement. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> that's actually a tricky statement that you're making there. There's no guarantee that Oscar's going to seek a favorable settlement. He's he just going to take care of things. Right. And Askel has no intention of leveraging his power as a chieftain to help Veyman screw over his neighbors. Mm-hmm. He reaches out to a friend of his named Eolf Valgerdesen, who is also close to Steingrim, and asks him to meet to make a settlement in the case. There he is, our old friend Eolf Valgerdesen. Yep. <laughs> uh, listeners might remember Eolf Valgerdesen from Finbogi's saga. He's a direct descendant of Helgi the Lean and the father of Goodman the Powerful, and as we saw in Finbogi, he's a power player in the region. Mm-hmm. He's definitely got the authority to pronounce settlements. And Oskil definitely wants a level-headed person to work on this. And, and as he says to Eolf, that will be less difficult. <laughs> what? <laughs> no. Oh, dear God. <laughs> there will be less difficulty if Vaymund and Steingrim do not meet, since both are very aggressive and not especially benevolent individuals. Whoa, steady on there, Askel. See? Them's fighting words. <laughs> well, for Askel, they kind of are. Yeah, yeah, no, that's true. Mm-hmm. Askel's about as close as we're going to see in the sagas to a country gentleman. Uh, for him, this is a serious character flaw in both men. This tendency toward being not benevolent. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he's not about to reward Vaymon for his behavior, so he agrees with Eolf to consider the whole matter, including the dead slaves, as offsetting penalties with no further compensation owed by either side. Which is pretty rough. I mean, actually, as, as I think about, it's really rough. Yeah, it really is. Not good. Not only is Askel intentionally giving up Veyman's chance at compensation for the dead servants, he's saying that Veyman's behavior is so egregious that all those dead men are only just enough to pay for his nephew's actions. Well, we've already seen that Askel isn't above being a little cold-blooded when he thinks someone's being stupid. Remember that he equates Hanif's death to a slave's death to make a similar point. Sure, but he can't think Veyman's going to tolerate this. No, but I think it sends a clear message to Steingrim's clan that Veyman isn't acting with the backing of his family. Which is a good point, but does that mean that you think he's setting Veyman up? No, I just think he's trying to resolve the current crisis. Hmm. Uh, and it works, or at least for a while. Right, so a, a little bit of time passes and a couple of weddings take place. Oh, yes, yes. Springtime in Mivaten, and a young man's fancy turns to midges and love. <laughs> okay. Um, Veyman's brother, Hals, marries a local farmer's daughter. Uh, a local farmer's daughter <laughs> named Helga Granadotte. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, but it's it's a sign of how bad the reputation of the Fjordlifersons has gotten that Grauni... Uh, Helga's father makes Oscar promise to establish the couple on a farm where Oscar can keep an eye on them because mm. he just doesn't trust Hals at all. But he does trust Oscar, so he's willing to make this arrangement. Yeah. Now, this is another one of those moments when we get a sense of just how unusual this saga author's style is. He makes a point of telling us that Hals and Helga don't get along all that well, but their sexual relationship is just fine. <laughs> it's shocking. Uh, This is one of the lines that I tweeted about recently when I was reading the saga. Well, it's a very odd comment. Mm -hmm. I mean, how many explicit discussions of a married couple's sex life can you remember in the sagas? Not many. It's not like it doesn't happen, but not many. Uh, But don't distract me with your puritanical reactions to the sex talk. (laughs) We need to talk about the second wedding because that's the one that's more interesting. Well, not even the wedding. The wedding is just a guy named Robin of Hull marrying the daughter of a prominent farmer. 
Steingrim and Hraven of Lundebreka attend the wedding. And at the reception, Steingrim makes a deal with another guest, Ornolf Grumbler, for two red oxen. After the wedding, he sends two of his men to bring the payment to Ornolf and return with the oxen. Now, this is a nice moment in terms of finding those little historical details in the sagas. Weddings were very, very important social events, kind of like the, the winter celebrations and the things and the all thing. And, mm-hmm. and they were a rare opportunity for people from a wide area to mingle in a more or less safe setting. Absolutely. And that's just the sort of situation, I think, in which a cagey Icelander might do a bit of wheeling and dealing over the course of the wedding feast. Mm-hmm. Especially after the drink has been flowing for a while and not everyone is at their best. Oh, and there'd be a lot of opportunity for that. I mean, these mm-hmm. feasts could go on for days if done right. Right, and it was a point of pride for the host not to let the drink run out during that feast. Overly expensive weddings are not a 20th century invention. Anyway, everything in this deal goes smoothly, except that Veyman hears about the purchase of the oxen, and he decides to try to buy them for himself. Of course he does. Know, what is it with him with trying to buy things that other people <laughs> have already bought? Well, that's Steingrim's family's already bought specifically. Uh, yeah. So when he turns out to be too late to buy them, Vaymond instead tracks Steingrim's farmhands down to where they're spending the night at a farmhouse. He takes the oxen, brings them to Oskil, but Oskil's incredibly disappointed and appalled by Vaymond's behavior. And Vaymond then has to bring the oxen home to his farm instead. I swear, Vaymond's like a cat bringing dead mice to Askel's door. Mm-hmm. Yeah, first the dead whale, now these cows. Hey! Look at this fairly horrible thing I did. Aren't you impressed? <laughs> uh, to be fair to Vaiman, though, he, he wanted to do it because he wanted to give Oskil something remarkable. Um, he, right. He noted, you know, but it's still a crappy gift. <laughs> Have these I think that's stolen... just a pretense. I don't think he actually intends to give those oxen. He never had any thought to give them to Oskil before this. Yes, he does. It's merely a pretext for going and hunting down the oxen that... Oh, I see. Been purchased by no, Steingrim. He does explicitly say that, yes. or I guess indirectly say, since there's no dialogue. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he right. says that he, he wants to give Oscar something special, and he right. these two oxen fit the bill. But I think right. you're right; they they fit the bill because they're Steingrim's pr- right, property. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Um. So Vayman sets a man named Svart to uh, watch over the oxen at night, but mm-hmm. Steingrim knows who took them, and he sends Rafn and Thorley Fox to get them back. Well, and here again, we see that things in this saga escalate quickly. Uh, Thorleif steals back the oxen pretty easily, but Hraven decides to keep Svart quiet by driving an axe into his head. And that does, it's effective, it keeps him quiet. <laughs> sure, but it's also completely unnecessary. Mm-hmm. It's not like Vayman doesn't know who's the only person likely to have stolen the oxen back from him. Yeah, but you know what, John? It's good for our body count, so let it be. Fair enough, but what about poor Svart? He's just left on the spot. Once again, murder not killing. Thorleif and Hraven then drive the oxen as far as they can, but oxen don't move as fast as horses, and they're forced to make camp off the road in the morning. But back at Vaymund's, a serving woman finds Svart's corpse, and Vaymund immediately gives chase. He and a neighbor muster two dozen men and some hunting dogs, and use those to track the oxen to the camp where Mm. Thorleif and Hraven are hiding. Now, that's an interesting detail, the hunting dogs. Yeah, I don't recall seeing anything like that before. Yeah, no, there's a lot to be said about those because we don't normally hear much about dogs in the sagas. Um, but the chase is afoot, so let's not pause over dogs. No, 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 no. I'm just going to make the point, if I may, that Viking Age Scandinavians had a large variety of dog breeds for hunting, shepherding, and guard duty. That's very important to say. Right, well, no, the most poor... <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. All right. <clears throat> you and I both know you shouldn't be doing this. But go ahead. 
the most popular tracking dogs were breeds used to track birds, but these dogs Veman's using might be for any number of hunting purposes. Either way, the point for the narrative is that it explains how they're able to race right to where the oxen are hidden. Sure. Uh, but it does work. <laughs> Thorleaf and Robin run to the defensible position uh, that they've got nearby, and there's an exchange of spears mm-hmm. during which poor old Thorleaf Fox is hit in the gut and killed. Ah, oh, that's a shame. Yeah. Thorleaf seemed like a decent guy, actually. He does. And Robin then manages to kill one of Veyman's men before leaping onto a horse and fleeing the fight like Errol Flynn. <laughs> but Veyman's not done yet. Out of spite, he beheads the two oxen so that Steingrim can't retrieve them and heads home. Which is really just nasty. I mean, what did those poor oxen do? Come on. Absolutely nothing. He's just being a jerk. Uh, and now he has to ask Askel for help again. I, I, I'm not entirely sure why he keeps going back to Askel for help. It, I mean, it's pretty clear by now that Askel doesn't want to help him and isn't willing <laughs> to negotiate any favorable settlements for him. I don't think he has a choice. <sighs> Veyman's behavior is getting more and more insupportable. And at this point, the best outcome he can hope for is not to end up getting outlawed. True. And when you've got an uncle who's a gothi, I mean, how do you not go to him for help? Well, you're kind of and stuck so going far, Askel has been able to help keep him from being outlawed, which is all he can really ask for. True, but once again, Askel contacts Eolf and offers a settlement which favors Steingrim. I mean, the killings are offset. Svart's death is offset by Veyman's obnoxious behavior again, and Veyman has to pay six hundred ls of cloth for the oxen. Which is how many ls? <laughs> it's a lot of ls. It's six hundred of, of them. Six hundred of them. Now, Veyman knows he hasn't got a choice about this. He does grumble that he never seems to get any compensation for his dead servants. But Askel tells him to be grateful that anyone's still willing to settle these matters with him. Yeah. So things are going to go quiet again for a while, at least. Just a while. Part 4. Thorgir Butter Ring Strikes a Blow. Now, the calm in the region lasts until a couple of years later in the summertime, when Steingrim accepts an invitation to participate in a horse fight at the Ljosvatn thing. Now, uh, John, I think you mean that he accepts an invitation for his horse to participate in the fight, right? <laughs> yes, Andy, that's exactly what I mean. <laughs> uh, anyway, uh, so all the men of the Mivatn clan are there as well. And since Oskel knows his nephew, he orders Veyman to stay away from the horse fights. And in fact, just just sit quietly in the corner for once. Right. Now, you'd think that Veyman would argue with this, but instead he's mm-hmm. he's fine with it for some reason. Mm-hmm. He meekly says, It often seems to you that I'm not receptive to advice. Now I realize how unwise <laughs> that is, and, and I shall do what I ought always to do, that is, to accept your good advice with thanks. Thank you very much. <laughs> That's Veyman's voice? Oh, yeah, I think that's perfect Uh, for Veyman. (laughs) Now, anytime someone like Veyman suddenly gets all compliant and well-behaved, we can be reasonably sure there's a plot afoot. Mm -hmm. And sure enough, unbeknownst to Oskal, Veyman's already arranged yet another plan. Another plan. I I know, at some point, you almost have to admire the man for his tenacity. Not really. As I was reading, I was thinking that he's (laughs) almost out-narfying Narfi from Cormac's saga. Uh, Narfi. Yeah. No, he is. He really is. Uh, like I said, you almost have to admire him. Uh, so the plan this time is that he's hired a local buffoon to hit Steingrim with a severed sheep's head. Oh, of course. Hit him with a sheep's head. Sure. <laughs> okay, then then what? No, 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 no. That's it. That's the entire plan. Uh, that's a brilliant plan. <laughs> Only an Iceland. And, 
And just to put the cherry on the Sunday, the man he hires for the job is a man named Thorgir Butterring. Yeah. Now, I also tweeted this nickname, and old Thorgir was an instant <laughs> hit with the crowd. How could he not be? <laughs> but but tell me, why why is it Butterring? Now, now, I can't spill all the nickname beans before the Judgment episode. You probably save us 20 minutes if you get into that. <laughs> for now, it's enough to tell you that the saga says... It was said of him that he thought no food was as good as bread and butter. He was thought to be a reckless person. He's clogging up those arteries. This is very <laughs> reckless of him. <laughs> All right. Well, what's the logic there? Explain this to me. Well, I don't know that it's the bread and butter eating that makes him reckless. I think he's just generally the kind of guy who will do anything on a dare. All Vaman has to do is offer to host and feed him for the winter if he's willing to hit Steingrim with a sheep's head, and he's in. He's all for it. Well, okay, so he's desperate, and he's offering an entire winter. That's a lot of bread and butter. <laughs> well, it sure is. Rings. <laughs> but, <laughs> right, bread and butter rings. But sadly, our friend Butter Ring isn't going to have a chance to collect. Uh, so during the horse fight, Thorgir sidles up behind Steingrim with the sheep's head on a stick and smacks Steingrim right in the back of the neck with it. Everyone instantly turns on Thorgir. Naturally. I mean, you don't just hit a guy with a sheep's head on a stick. It's rude. <laughs> well, and Thorgir calls out for Vaman to defend him, but Vaman is just sitting quietly in timeout and does nothing. <laughs> Conveniently. Uh, Steingrim and his brothers, brothers-in-law chase Buttering through the assembly, catch him, and kill him on the spot. <laughs> Poor guy. And Sorry to as laugh. the author tells us, so Steingrim gave Thorgir his winter provisions and lodging and took that responsibility from Vaman. <laughs> so he buried him. That's an amazing image. I, you know, I picture Butterring crashing through the crowd, shouting for Vaman, help, help me, and still holding onto that old sheep's head in one hand as he runs with three armed men coming after him. I, I'm really kind of sorry there isn't more to say about this guy. Yeah. I would like to have a few thought here about Thorgir Butterring, if, if not an entire saga. Oh, yeah. I mean, it'd be a pretty goofy saga, but still. <laughs> it's going to be right up our alley. Um, but anyway, this isn't. <laughs> this episode isn't over yet. Butterring dies, still calling out for help from Vaymond, help me! <laughs> it's me, Butterring! <laughs> just one more bread and butter before I die. Well, and just like before, people are a little bit suspicious as Vaymond's oh, really? being called, his name's being <laughs> <Why>? called. <laughs> Oskel offers a settlement, but Steingrim refuses this time. Steingrim's just tired of making settlements that Vaman simply doesn't keep. Which is, I have to say, a reasonable point. Oh, yeah. And interestingly, Oskel makes a point of giving gifts to Eol Falgerson before the two groups part. And to me, that's a very significant act on Oskel's sure. part. Sure, yeah, absolutely. Now, Oskel and Eolf have been the representatives from multiple settlements between these groups, and Vaman has broken every one of them. There's a lot of honor at stake for Steingrim and Vaman in this feud, but Eolf's got some skin in the game as well because of his part in making these agreements that Vaman's been breaking. Those gifts show Askel's wisdom, I think. They're a nice way to limit the fallout from Vaman's stupid pranks. Yes, but there is another issue. Oskil's already shown that he'll go to great lengths to keep the peace, and at this point, Steingrim's not willing to hear a settlement offer from them. But Eolf's still friends with Steingrim, and by giving gifts to Eolf, Oskil keeps the channel open for future negotiations. Sure, yeah, that makes sense. That's a mouthful, too. And of course, it doesn't do much good. <laughs> no, no, it's it won't. Uh, Steingrim's been pushed just a little too far. 
Well, on the other hand, it's not like he's burning for revenge either. I mean, nothing happens for a full two years after the death of Butterring. Uh, it's only when Hraven, Steingrim's farm manager, goads him about it that Steingrim calls together a crew of men to ride with him to Veyman's farm. You know, he actually gets a pretty good-sized group together, mm-hmm. uh, 19 men, including his brothers-in-law, Stein and Helgi, a neighbor named Gnup of Oxnahal, and Steingrim's friend, Hraven of Hull. No, uh, I don't know if we said this yet, but there are a lot of Hravens in this saga. <laughs> yes, there are. <laughs> and unfortunately, such a large group has a hard time moving unseen, and Veyman is warned that they're coming. So, Konal and Veyman call 40 men together and prepare to defend the farm. But Steingrim's group spots them first, and rather than attack the larger force, they decide to seek revenge by attacking the unprotected farm of Veyman's poor brother, Herjolf. Now, Herjolf's been largely blameless in this saga. Mm-hmm. Remember, he's the one who refused to have anything to do with Veyman's plan to steal Steingrim's lumber. Yeah. But Steingrim's men aren't going to be satisfied unless they strike at the Mivatan clan, and so poor Herjolf is targeted. Steingrim's man, Thorstein the Blind, lures Herjolf out of the house by asking for directions. Of course. And when Herjolf emerges from his door, he's attacked and killed. Now, there aren't really any details given about the killing itself, just that he's dead and that it was Gnup that struck the blow. Mm-hmm. The rest of the men then ride home, but Raven of Hall stops to announce the killing at the farm of Fjorlif, Herjolf's mother. And she simply says, Herjolf suffered on Veymon's account. I'm not left without kinsmen, and am consoled with this, that the killing will be avenged. Now, that's ominous, Mm -hmm. but it's also probably a fairly safe prediction. Well, maybe. But Oskel's still going to try one last time to keep this powder keg from exploding. He and Mm -hmm. Eolf meet again and work out a harsh judgment against the conspirators. A hundred in silver is to be paid for Herjolf, and in addition, Hraven of Hall and Steingrim's brother-in-law Stein receive lesser outlawry sentences of three years' banishment, while Gnup and uh, Thorstein the Blind receive major outlawry and must leave Iceland forever. So poor Thorstein now, the Blind is going to be banging his shins all over Europe. Right. Now, that's a pretty substantial settlement. It is, but it comes with a major caveat. There's to be a three-year grace period before the sentences go into effect to allow them in time to make arrangements, which is pretty generous. But after yeah, that, really. they're outlaws, and if they're caught in Iceland, they can be killed. Yeah, three years is a very long time to delay the enforcement of a judgment. Yeah, and it's far more usual for an outlawry sentence to be carried out within days of the judgment or, or sometimes uh, right away. Yeah, this is another example of Oskol trying to keep the peace at all costs. He's giving these men plenty of time to clear out without a fight. So three years pass, but Steingrim's men aren't eager to leave. And on the first day of summer, Vaymund Fringe turns control of his farm over to his wife. He takes one servant with him and goes on the warpath. Right. Now this is the explosion the saga's been building toward for most of its length, and it doesn't disappoint. No, it's great stuff. So let's run through the whole thing, kind of saga thing, quickly. You take Mm. the first attack. Okay. First, Vaymon and his servant pick up an Irish slave named Melkoff, and the three of them attack Gnup, who is conveniently out with two of his slaves, at some gravel flats near his home. Mm -hmm. Vaymon chops off Gnup's leg, but Knup tries to continue fighting from his knees. This is but a scratch. <laughs> this is no, but a flesh wound. We're not doing that. <laughs> we're not doing that. Veyman leaves him on his knees, sends Melkoff home, on. and continues on. That's really cool, though. Uh, next, yeah. Veyman learns that Steingrim's brother-in-law, Stein, is on an island and asks a farmer named Galti to ferry him out there. He also asks to take along Galti's son, Thorvald. 
Stein sees them coming and tries to run for a boat shed for protection, but Veyman hits him in the foot with a spear and hobbles him. Ouch. I have to say, that does seem to be the go-to injury in this saga. It was in the uh, Finbogi saga, too. People were getting hit mm. in the instep all the time. Mm. Now, Stein puts up a brave fight and kills young Thorvald before he's killed by Veymund. Now, next, uh, Veymund and his servant are riding toward home when they see Hraven of Hull out r- rounding up horses. Veymund quickly attacks Hraven and cuts off his hand before riding away. And meanwhile, Stein's father, Thorbjorn, and brother Helgi are out looking for revenge for Stein's death. And when they find Thorvald's father, Galti, they kill him at once. And then everyone rides home and waits for the fallout from this chaos that you probably mm-hmm. haven't really followed. Right. <laughs> well, essentially, everybody's running around trying to kill people all at once. Mm-hmm. Uh, when it's all over with, there's a pile of corpses, a bunch of injured men, and a lot of lawsuits to be sorted out. Yeah. Eventually... Askel and Eild Falgardison are once again tasked with resolving the feud. Remember, they're two of the three Gothar in this region, and so this is naturally going to fall in their laps. They determine that nearly everyone involved wasn't supposed to be in Iceland. Right? These are mostly outlaws we're talking about. But they award damages for the death of Galti the farmer. They also decide on a strange and what I think is somewhat desperate solution to the feud. Vaymund and his brother Halls are now considered to be outlaws except when they're at home or in the company of Askel. Poor Askel. While Helgi Thorbjarnason is only allowed to travel in the company of Eyjolf. So they're they're under house arrest, basically. This is kind of new. We haven't seen this. Well, like I said, I think they're just desperate at this point. But even that's not going to slow these guys down for long. I mean, despite his house arrest, Helgi Thorbjarnason manages to get engaged to a woman named Thora Hallstein's daughter. And mm-hmm. Veyman, despite his house arrest manages to meet with a cousin of his named Narfi, not the Narfi, and convinces right. him to try to marry Thora. But she's already engaged. The wedding is about to take place. Oh, nothing's impossible for young love, John. Especially <laughs> if the uh, would-be groom's cousin, Vaymond, hires a witch to help steal the bride away. Oh, well, I mean, sure, if you hire a witch. Exactly. Sure. So on the day of the wedding, Vaymond and nine other men are hiding in a boathouse nearby. And as the bride is being led to the ceremony... A black darkness falls, and strong wind tumbles the bride down a slope to Vaymond's waiting kidnapping party. And they ride off while the wedding party is left behind in chaos. So this actually works. Yeah. I find it hard to believe that any scheme of Vaymond's could work. Well, you know, it works at first, but uh, among the wedding guests is another magician. It's a man named Steinfin who casts... So, a spe- so there are just witches and magicians ten a penny in this part of Iceland? Well, there's a lot of them, yeah, apparently. <laughs> and and who the hell uses a phrase like ten a penny? Are we back in the 1930s <laughs> what? or whenever you were born? Oh, you prefer strawpennies? Haypennies? Thruppence? <laughs> Tuppence a bag? <laughs> so uh, Steinfin casts a spell to slow the progress of Veyman's horses so that Helgi and 19 of his men can catch up to them. Yeah, now it's interesting. Uh, once again, we see that name element, Finn, linked with magical talent. Hmm. Right, this link between Finnish blood and mystical otherworldliness runs deep in the sagas. Yeah. Well, Steinfin's no slouch. With his help, Helgi's party catches up to Vaymans, and a brawl gets underway. Five men total are killed, three of Vaymans, two of Helgi's, and a local farmer then breaks up the fight. Helgi takes his bride and goes back to the farm, and so Vaymans doesn't actually win this one. 
Right. Now, presumably, they go back to the farm to complete what is now a very awkward way. <laughs> it would be very, very <laughs> strange. So uh, there wasn't really any point in continuing the fight over Thora since the second suitor, Narfi, is among the dead in the fight. Oops. <laughs> yeah, sorry about that, Narfi. Uh, yeah, well, oops. Uh, meanwhile, Oscar learns about this latest exploit and just rips into Vaiman this time. You should just kill him. You have behaved very perversely in this matter, and you have committed one folly after another. Ooh. Which is a pretty fair statement, actually. Oh, yeah, very strong words. Why didn't he smack him? Or yeah, He's got to get physical with this guy. <laughs> anyway, Vaymond, as usual, takes Oscar's lecture quietly. But as we can probably guess by now, he's not listening, and he's not done yet. No, he's not. Which brings us to... Part 5, The Battle of Vodlar Heath. So this next chain of events kicks off with the news that Hals Fjolifersen's wife, Helga, has run away from her husband's household and is back living with her father. Really? <laughs> Gee, now how could any woman resist the charms of a Fjolifersen, especially someone like Hals? He's nearly as bad as Vaymond, so what's the Which, problem? Which, incidentally, is exactly what Oskel thinks. Mm-hmm. And when Hals tries to get Oskel involved in changing Helga's mind, Oskel says... I will have no part in your affairs, given the scandalous way you Fjorlifsons consistently behave. Rooney! Pardon my French, but you're an ass! That's right. <laughs> now, th- <laughs> now, that's quite a snit from old Oscar, isn't it? Well, I mean, frankly, it's long overdue. And, of course, uh, Vaiman Fjorlifson isn't sitting around doing nothing. He tries to take over a lawsuit from Ornolf the Grumbler who's still owed a little bit of money over the sale of those two red oxen. <laughs> uh, Andy, do you remember who bought those oxen? <laughs> well, yeah, it was uh, Steingrim. But yeah. he never, ever got them home because Vayman stole them. Yup. Yeah. I mean, this is the snarkiest, most obnoxious thing I've seen in the sagas in a long time. Disrupt your enemy's purchase of some livestock, then steal them, then kill a man who's trying to steal them back, then kill the livestock... Then take up a lawsuit from the original owner over a minor debt owed for the livestock you killed. Oh, Vayman is a piece of work. I mean, this is a virtuosic piece of nastiness. It really is. Uh, the only flaw is that Grumbler's no fool, and he insists on speaking with Oskel before letting Vayman take over the case. Now, I think the theme of this section of the saga is that the Fjörlifersons have essentially worn out their welcome in this region. I mean, Finbogi mm-hmm. got kicked out for much less, but right. <laughs> finally everyone's onto their tricks. Yeah, Oskel certainly is. Mm-hmm. Uh, he forbids Vayman from getting involved, and of course, to thwart him, Oskel is forced to take up the case himself. Oskel definitely doesn't care about the case itself. I mean, right. the entire case is only for half a mark of silver, which is very little. But to, mm-hmm. to keep Vayman from getting the case, Oskel gives Grumbler two full marks of silver. In other words, it's four times the outstanding debt. That's Andy math. Right. Right. There you go. That's the math. Now, this is another one of those moments when we see Oscar being a peace seeker to a fault. He keeps getting mired in these situations in the hope that he can stop Vayman from creating complete chaos. It, it speaks to how strongly Kintai's bound these guys together. I mean, the maternal uncle is an important relationship in these communities. And so Oscar mm. feels a strong responsibility to watch over his sister's sons. But they sure don't make it easy for him, and I think he's really <laughs> stupid for uh, even trying. Oh no, they don't make it easy for him. But I think it's no, it's there's some nobility to what he's trying to oh, do. Get out of here! At some point, it's just uh, stupid. Well, but while Oskel and Steingrim meet at the Vodler thing that spring and work out an amicable solution to the suit, 
Vaymond is lurking around the place again. Oh, he's just relentless. I mean, if you weren't such a jerk, I'd almost be impressed by this guy. <laughs> and every time you think he's hit a moral rock bottom, he pulls out a shovel. <laughs> this time, he poses as a workman, gets a job working for Steingrim's neighbor at the thing, and then stampedes a bunch of cattle into Steingrim's booth. <sighs> you know, I, I just don't know what to say. I mean, it's brilliant. Vayman's clearly a six-year-old trapped in a grown man's body. <laughs> <laughs> this whole episode is just you know, its hilarious. Well, and the best part is that Vayman makes the booth, quote, as foul as possible <laughs> with a bunch of cows, which I imagine is pretty damn foul. This is springtime, and those cows have been grazing on new grass for the first time in months. So <laughs> it's probably some juicy fertilizer right there. Oh, is juicy really necessary? Well, <laughs> once he's finished paving Steingrim's booth in cow crap, <laughs> Vayman offers to take take care of any lawsuits that Steingrim might direct against the neighbor who hired him. So he's found a way to get back into the game of annoying Steingrim in spite of his uncle. As you said, you almost have to admire the guy. Almost. But the the shape of this saga almost demands that he die horribly and preferably very soon. Well, hang on. We're not done yet. No, while all of this is going on, Vayman's brother Hals is finding it impossible to manage his farm without his wife's help. And so <laughs> he once again begs Oskel to help him to convince Helga to come home. Now, I like that detail, actually. Uh, the tone of this saga isn't that Hals is concerned about his reputation or angry at Helga or anything. He's just sincerely at a loss for how to run the place by himself. <laughs> right. That's a part of that division of labor that we see referenced in a number of the sagas. Men and Mm -hmm. women had some overlapping responsibilities, but there were also tasks that fell clearly into the world of women and the world of men. Both sexes Mm -hmm. tended to be a little uncertain about how to do the work that fell under the other's authority. Well, and besides that, there's also just the reality of how labor-intensive life was for people in this era. Both men and women. Yeah, it's a matter of record that people tended to get remarried fairly quickly after the loss of a spouse. Mm -hmm. Sometimes that's just a matter of personal choice, but often I think it's just pragmatism at work. Well, I think most often it's uh, pragmatism. But mm-hmm. uh, let's not head down that whole rabbit hole because there's some interesting things we could say about gender roles in yeah. the sagas. But um, we'll just devote an episode to talking about home life on this Icelandic farm at some point. Ooh, wait. I thought it was my job to promise saga briefs that never happened. Oh, come on now. You don't hold a copyright on that. Uh, but <laughs> let's try to stick to our topic. So Oscar finally agrees to visit Helga's father, Grani. He brings along 19 men to make a good showing, and Vaymund and Hals come along as well, which probably isn't very smart. I, I really don't understand why Vaymund is along on this no. trip. I, I mean, I know he's not supposed to leave home without Oskel anymore, yeah. but that doesn't mean he has to travel with him. No, just leave the ankle bracelet on him and leave him at right. home. <laughs> now, I don't think anyone's been taking that ruling very seriously. Vaymund's been all over the place without Oskel since that whole thing was decided. Mm-hmm. I guess he just has a talent for being where trouble is. Well, or in this case, Oskel just doesn't trust him out of his sight. Or Oskel's very bad at watching him. But uh, well, if that was the logic, there's a serious problem. Halls and Vayman tend to egg one another on. They're not mm-hmm. the best companions. And as the party's riding to Grani's house, they see a group of men bathing in a hot spring that's quite near the road. And among those men, they recognize old Steingrim and some of his friends. Oh, right. This. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's not good. No, and just in case it weren't already bad, Hal shouts to Vaymond, Hey, Steingrim keeps trying to wash off the dishonor he got when you had him smacked with that sheep's head. It's going to be a long struggle before he gets it all washed off, eh? <laughs> right, and cue the medieval Icelandic record scratch. Everyone freezes. 
<laughs> Actually, it, it's not clear whether Steingrim even heard Halls, but Oskil thinks he mm. did and snaps at Halls that trolls must direct your tongue when you say such things. But Steingrim doesn't react, and they're able to continue their journey. Uh, yeah, no, the the group stays at Grani's farm overnight, and Oskil is able to work out an agreement by which Helga will come home, as long as Hals promises to amend his ways. Uh, instantly, you have to imagine that Oskil is thinking back to Hals taunting Steingrim and crossing his fingers when he promises that Hals will behave. <laughs> True. So uh, the next day, Helga's with the group as they head back. Poor girl. <laughs> but when they... I just imagine her head hung in shame like... Here this idiot. Again. I'm back with this idiot. <laughs> I gotta go run his farm for him. Uh, but when they reach <laughs> Vodlar Heath, they see 30 men riding toward them on the opposite side of the river. And of course, it's Steingrim. And as Oscar points out, they now know that Steingrim had heard Hall's joke the day before. Now, it's important to uh, this part to, to understand that the river is frozen over, but not thickly frozen over. As we said, it's springtime mm -hmm. and the ice is rotten. So the two groups exchange spear throws from opposite banks, but no one is hurt. Steingrim realizes his men are going to have to cross the ice if they want to attack the Fjordlifersons. And this, this is one of the strangest moments in the saga. Oskil sees the men heading to the river, and he calls out a warning that the ice looks dangerous. Hey, be careful, everyone. <laughs> the ice is getting thinner. Uh, now, John, I, I ask you, what on earth is Oskil doing here? Well, remember, he's famous for his sense of fairness. Right? This is in mm -hmm. keeping with his belief in fair play. But there's fair play, and then there's just plain nuts. I mean, these people are coming to kill well, him. Oskil just really doesn't want blood spilled. Yeah, but if they get across the ice, blood will definitely be spilled. Yeah, but only if they get across. Oskil's mm -hmm. warning might be a way to stop Steingrim's party from attempting to cross, and so avoid the bloodshed that would result if they do make it. Well, I mean, if that's the case, then it doesn't work very well. <laughs> it's true. Helgi, Steingrim's brother-in-law, shouts back taunts, claiming that Oskil's making up excuses and that he's a wimp, uh, which is kind of true. Uh, but most of Steingrim's men edge out onto the ice, and then immediately the ice begins to mm -hmm. crack. And while they're doing that, Steingrim's brother-in-law Helgi uses his spear to vault over the river. Which is a nice bit of Icelandic acrobatics. It is, but it's best to make sure the way is clear before doing something like that. Hall's Trilliferson is waiting for him, and Helgi gets an axe in his chest for his troubles as soon as he lands. Oh, that's awful. Well, it's not always wise to be first to the party. <laughs> Helgi's body falls backward into the river, and at that point the ice breaks up completely, and Steingrim's party falls into the icy water. And what follows at this point is complete chaos, and it really almost becomes a slaughter. Mm -hmm. The Fjörlifersen's men begin throwing spears at the struggling men in the water, and ultimately five men are killed. Helgi, another freeman, two drowned men, and Steingrim. Wow. So that's it. That's Steingrim's finally dead, and that's how it happens. Yeah. Yeah, this is another one of those moments when the saga gives us multiple paths forward. Did Vaymund manage to throw a spear through Steingrim? Is this simply a case of drowning? No one seems to know. And so the author just shrugs and moves on with his story. Well, either way, it's kind of a frustrating anticlimax. Well, it is. But the Fjolifersons are pretty pleased about it. Well, Since sure. five men on Steingrim's side die, including Steingrim, uh, before they can extricate themselves from the broken ice. Um, and the Fjolifersons haven't suffered a single casualty in the fight, so it's pretty good for them. Well, not yet they haven't. But there's a nasty surprise waiting for them. One of the men in Steingrim's party, uh, Thorir Kettleson, 
managed to slide across the ice while everyone else was falling in. And he's now hiding along the riverbank on the Ferlifersen side. As the Ferlifersens turn to head for home, Thor leaps out of hiding and attacks the rearmost man of the party, who happens to be Askel. It's almost ridiculous. I mean, after all this, Steingrim and Oskil are both going to go down in a, a minor skirmish on a riverbank? Well, it looks that way. Uh, Oskil asks Helga to bind up the wound, and so at first, no one else knows about it. Well, except for Thorir Kettleson, who I <laughs> well, assume right. is running away at this point, isn't he? Yes, yes. Uh, he slides back across the ice and rejoins his friends, who are glad to hear that someone on their side managed to land a blow. So Oscar's going to live a day and a night with his head wound before finally dying at home. And it's quite tragic, really. It is. And Oscar is still trying to avoid bloodshed even as he dies, mm-hmm. appointing Eolf Elgerdesen and Havard Frelifersen to make the settlement for the battle and his own death. And then, having arranged compensation for himself, Oscar dies. Mm. He goes out very much like Ingemund. So mm. let, let's let's have a moment of silence for poor old Oscar. No, we don't have time for that. This has already oh. gone on far too long. All right, then. Pardon me for trying to make this moment meaningful, since the author really didn't bother. Well, <laughs> that's not entirely true. It's pretty news, true. Well, news of the deaths of Steingrim and Oscar hit the community hard. Both men were leaders in the region, and there's something of a power vacuum resulting from their deaths. But the settlement goes ahead as Oscar had wanted. And his son Thorstein agrees to it, saying, My father always wished to distance people from difficulties rather than stir them up to acts of violence. So I will not block this settlement. I guess that's a a pretty fair eulogy for old Askel. Mm. Theodore Anderson's even more complimentary about him. He says, Of all the saga protagonists, Askel is perhaps the most unblemished. He's rather more saintly, in fact, than the actual Saint Olaf. Mm. And then the saga author adds this claim about him, that people thought Oskel's death a great loss because he had been a great and popular chieftain. Well, that is an impressive eulogy. I think comparing him to St. Olaf is going a bit far. But even if Thorstein and Anderson and our author heap praise on Oskel's memory, that doesn't mean the settlement's going to work. As you may remember from all the way back at the beginning of this conversation, Oskel's got two sons. Oh, yes, I have not forgotten that. And we're going to meet his second son, Killer Skuta, in the second half of this saga. Mm-hmm. And I know I'm looking forward to it. Skuta's like a bull in a china shop, and the second half of this saga has a lot of fun stuff in it. Well, what it doesn't have in it is Vaymond Fringe. Oh. He dies a little while after this. He dies of, of a horrible injury, right? He's, he's drawn <laughs> and quartered. He's, he's blood-eagled for being uh, a bastard. What happens? Nope. Um, he just gets sick and dies. Peacefully, at home, in bed. It's a huge disappointment. Man. It really is. Talk about anticlimactic. I know. Unfortunately, the artistic realism of the sagas means that this happens occasionally. The authors are trying to establish at least the received version of historical events. And that means that sometimes the bad men live while the good men die. Can we at least assume it was like a painful illness? Yeah, fair enough. Let's make it awful. Yeah. Uh, but for now, we're going to have to leave it there, with the Mivatan clan and the entire region reeling from the loss of its leadership and uneasily waiting the return of the prodigal Askelson. Oh, are you sure you want to end the episode on a terrible joke like that? Hey, as long as we end it. <laughs> <laughs> the prodigal Askelson. You ought to be ashamed of yourself. <laughs> All right. 
If you have any thoughts about the saga so far that you want to share with us, you can leave a comment on our webpage, sagathingpodcast.wordpress.com, or join in the conversation on our Facebook page for Saga Thing Podcast, or find us on Twitter at SagaThingPod. Or you can try to convince Robin Gunningham to spray paint a message to us in a politically poignant mural. In the meantime, remember to send us your pictures of yourself at saga-related sites, statues, and monuments. Mm. Our email address is sagathingpodcast at gmail.com. And don't forget to spread the word about your favorite podcast. Or at least your favorite podcast about the Icelandic sagas. Right. Uh, Those iTunes reviews really do help, and we so much appreciate you guys taking the time to do that. Indeed we do. Thanks for listening, everyone. We'll be back soon with the bloody conclusion of Rekdala Saga with the story of Killer Skuta. Bye for now. You can suck my butter ring. <laughs> <laughs>